I want today to deal with the, the subject of the problem of suffering. The problem of suffering. In Job chapter 14 and verse 1, the Bible simply says, Man that is born of a woman is of few days and full of trouble. There's another place in Job where it says that man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. Suffering and affliction is part and parcel of living in this world. Now in 1 Peter chapter 4, the subject that is brought before us is a particular type of suffering. It is the suffering of the believer. And we read, for instance, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, that's a lovely term <clears throat> that encompasses all the people of God. We are loved by God. And being loved by God, we're loved by God's servants as well. And Peter is writing to people who he loved. He loved them. God loved them. And he says, Beloved, Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. And he goes on to say some more things about the suffering of the believer. In particular, the suffering that he's referring to is on account of persecution. And we'll come to that. But what he says about suffering in general is true. Not just suffering that comes upon the believer because he's persecuted by the world, but suffering that comes upon the believer just as part and parcel of living in this world, and particularly living in this world as a child of God. You'll notice that he mentions here significantly Christ's sufferings. And when we think about human suffering, we think about any kind of suffering, we must always reflect upon the fact that there is a suffering that far surpasses any suffering that you and I can be capable of. And that is the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in a class of its own. I've heard people say things such as, someone is a bit like Christ, in the sufferings that he's having to endure. <clears throat> it may well be in a certain sense that you can be like the Lord because you can be a partaker of Christ's sufferings. Paul talked about his own sufferings as making up the balance of the sufferings of Christ. Not that he was seeking to add to his sufferings, but it was part and parcel of his lot as a Christian to suffer as Christ did. But Christ's sufferings are unique. They are without peer. They are beyond comparison. And we must always remember this when talking about human suffering. Whatever we might suffer, it is as nothing compared to what Christ suffered. And Peter makes this point very well throughout his epistle, the first epistle. You will notice, for example, in 1 Peter Chapter 1, verse 11, <clears throat> the actual term is used, the sufferings of Christ. You go into the next chapter, to chapter 2, and towards the end of that chapter, in verse 21, and again in verse 23, he says, Christ also suffered for us. He suffered, says verse 23. And this is something that he continues to speak of in chapter 3. Verse 18, for Christ also hath once suffered for sins. And in chapter 4 he begins, Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh. Verse 13, rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings. The sufferings of Christ. It's a wonderful study in itself. And he did suffer. And he suffered for this purpose, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Only his sufferings are atoning. No one else has ever suffered anything that merited God's favor. 
Christ's sufferings were for sin. And we thank God that he did suffer for us. But I want to talk about human suffering. I want to talk about the problem of suffering as it is experienced by God's people. As a believer, you will learn ere long, when you first come to Christ, that the Christian life is not a picnic. We're not called to live on a playground, but we are called to a battleground. And there are many afflictions that come upon the believer. Not just because he lives in this world with others, but by virtue of his relationship to Jesus Christ. Now it's obvious from scripture and from our own experience, as one person said, God never establishes a no-fly zone keeping all problems away from us. He never promises that your life as a Christian will be safe and easy and peaceful and healthy and prosperous. There are those who preach a prosperity gospel. They're charlatans. They do not tell the truth. Anyone who tells you it's God's will for you always to be healthy, wealthy and happy is not telling you the truth. Because that does not gel with scripture nor with the experience of God's people through the ages. It's nice to be healthy. It's even nice if you can stand it to be wealthy as long as you're not in a situation where things have you rather than you having things. When the Bible talks about people who have riches, it usually speaks of the fact that it's hard to have riches and enter the kingdom of God. It's hard to sit light by riches, but it's not impossible. I think of Abraham who was very rich in cattle and goods. He was a man who was the friend of God. Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man and he was used of God at the time when Jesus died along with Nicodemus in embalming the Lord's body and seeking to have his body buried in Joseph's own tomb. So it's not incompatible with being a Christian to have things. The problem is when things have us. Some people, their attitude is, get all you can, and then can all you get. And of course, this is not scriptural. The Lord teaches that we should, if we have any wealth, use it for the advancement of the kingdom of God as best we can. But notice, the Lord never promises to his people prosperity. On the contrary, you and I are very certain to experience dangers and hardships and turmoil and loss and ill health. <clears throat> and some of God's most beloved children have lived lives that were particularly fraught with physical pain. Some of them suffered poverty. Some of them suffered loss and betrayal and isolation. And obviously for all of us, death is the inevitable final affliction. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Someone said, we humankind are mariposa lilies in death valley after rain. We flourish for a moment. And then the wind passes over us and we're gone. And there's no trace of it anymore. That's how Psalm 103 describes the experience of God's beloved people. Now, of course, people who are not believers suffer. People who are not Christians also live brief and troubled lives. And so you can't read God's favor or disfavor just by assessing how troubled a person's life is or not. See, we have an attitude in the world that if things are going well for a person, he must be living right. You've heard that. Oh, he must be living right. Oh, you must be doing the right things. But of course, when you come to the scripture and you read about someone like Job, that blows that theory out of the water. 
Because Job is described in Job chapter 1, verse 1, by the Holy Spirit, by the way, not by some other person, but by God himself, as a man who lived in a particular geographical location in the land of Uz. But what does it say of him? His name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright. Now, we should understand the word perfect there is a word that's used in a comparative sense. He wasn't perfect, and the book of Job illustrates this. But it means that he was well-rounded or mature as a believer. He was an advanced believer. Perfect and upright, and one that feared God and eschewed evil. He wanted to do right. He largely did what was right. But oh how he suffered. And perhaps we will come to that in future messages. It's obvious from the scripture that you can't read into someone's life because they have known God's favour or his disfavour that they are righteous or not. The fact of the matter is that God's favour and God's disfavour can be felt by those who are righteous in their lives. If any man suffer as a Christian, Peter says in the passage before us. Now it is obvious from scripture and from our own experience that we receive good gifts from the hand of God. He giveth us richly all things to enjoy. God is good to all And his tender mercies over all his works. Psalm 145 tells us that. And most people in this world, there are exceptions, but most people experience something of what is good. They have their daily bread, usually more than they need. They have a measure of good health, most of them, many of them. They have friends, they have companions. They have moments of joy. They have opportunities in this life to become good at at something. They know what it's like to experience pleasure and joy and even restful sleep. But of course there are no guarantees of anything that's good in this earth. No guarantees that we're going to enjoy tomorrow what we enjoy today. But all good gifts come from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness nor shadow of turning. God is good. And we should always appreciate that. And his gifts may be gratefully enjoyed. But in the midst of this, there's the problem of suffering. What are we going to say about this? Well, I have three things that I want to deal with in regard to The problem of suffering in a believer's life. First of all, there's the reality that must be faced by believers. A reality that must be faced by believers. What is that reality? Well, it is what Peter tells us here in his epistle. We will experience fiery trial. See this? 1 Peter 4 verse 12. Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. It's going to happen. You're not going to be able to avoid it. And he goes on to say, later on in verse 14, If you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. Verse 16, If any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be Ashamed, And then, significantly in verse 19, he says, Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him. What does that tell us? There is a suffering that is in accordance with the will of God. The problem of suffering is a reality that must be faced by every Believer, we are not immune to pain and anguish and sorrow and suffering. In fact, we would have to say that the Christian is probably going to have to face more affliction 
than the non-Christian. Because as well as the normal pressures and afflictions that come upon men, the Christian has spiritual battles to cope with that the unbeliever doesn't know anything about. You've heard the story of the young men who were going along in their speedy sports car and the pastor was walking along the side of the highway out for a stroll. And the one guy said to the other, we'll stop and we'll play a trick on the reverend. So they pulled the car over and said, Reverend, you want to ride? Sure. They get into the sports car. They're going along and the one says, Hey, Reverend, there's a big bend on the road coming up here. If we get around that bend on the road and the devil comes out, who do you think he'll take first? Oh, the minister said, that's easy. He'll take me. Really? He'll take you? Why would he take you? Because he's already got you two. That's why. The devil's already got you two guys. And that's true. There's no spiritual battle in the heart of someone who's lost. They're not fighting with the devil. They're on his side. They're doing his will. They're doing his bidding. They're serving self and sin. There's no spiritual battle within their soul. But that's not true of the Christian. There's an ongoing battle. And you know it if you're saved. And the Bible teaches us, doesn't it, in many scriptures, that tribulation and suffering is going to be something that we must expect in this world. Just on the eve of going to the cross, Jesus said to his disciples in John 16, verse 33, In this world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. You're going to have tribulation in this world. You just better face it. You go on to the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 14, the Apostle Paul is going back to visit churches that he had established on previous journeys. He wanted to strengthen and encourage those churches. But you know what he tells them? Acts 14 verse 22, We must through much tribulation enter the kingdom of God. Not we might or we could. We must. And so when trouble comes upon your life, You must understand that it is the will of God. And it should not be a surprise to you as a Christian when you face trials, problems and sufferings. Actually, the lack of these things ought to be a surprise. The question really is, how do we deal with it? What are we to do with the problem of suffering? Well, this is the first point. It's a reality that has to be faced by believers. We have to understand that this is part and parcel of being a Christian living in this world. Someone said to me one time, it's going to be really wonderful when we die and go to heaven and we're in the sweet by and by, but in the meantime, we're living in the nasty now and now. Here we are, this side of heaven. You know what usually happens when there's trouble in the life of an unbeliever? It makes him bitter and angry with God. I've known people like that. I remember very well in my first congregation, there was a fellow whose father, he never came to our church, didn't want to come to church, didn't want to to go to any church. And the reason for it was, apparently at least from what he said, That he and his wife had lost a a child, whether it was stillborn or lost in infancy. And because of that, he was angry with God. He was angry with God. Why would God do that to me and my wife? And that is a typical reaction of many in this world. Suffering usually causes a person who's not a believer... To feel sorry for himself and to blame God in some way. But this is not to be the reaction of the believer. We are to understand that suffering is part and parcel of life in this world. It doesn't mean we have to enjoy it. The Lord doesn't want you to be someone with a death wish or somebody who lives 
inviting trouble into their life. Oh, isn't it going to be a wonderful thing to be in all this suffering and pain? No, no, no. That's not natural. That's not normal. It's not Christian either. But we are to rejoice in sufferings. Romans 5 verse 3. We are to understand that these things are part and parcel of living in this world. Now the Lord Jesus taught us to expect persecution. And that's a particular type of suffering. That's the type of thing that happens to you as a Christian when you're saved and all the rest of the members of your family or your connection are not saved. You're going to find that there's a big target on your back. And you're right in the crosshairs. Or it might be in your place of employment. And hardly anybody else, and maybe no one else in that place of employment, is a Christian. You're going to find that you come under pressure. And people expect a standard of living from you that they don't expect of themselves. Because you say you're a Christian. And there's always, whether it's overt Persecution or covert, there's always a price to be paid when you live for God and you stand for what is right. Especially when what you do cuts across what they're doing. Your life brings conviction upon them because you're not going in the same direction as them. Don't we see that here in First Peter chapter 4? <clears throat> Just look at the early part of the chapter. It talks about the suffering of Christ. And it talks about not living your life any longer in the lusts of men, but to the will of God. Now look at verse 3 and verse 4. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. They're party animals. They expect you to be a party animal. They like going to places where the drink is flowing. They want you to go to places where the drink is flowing. And when you don't, you come under pressure. Because your life brings conviction upon them. I always link together these verses, by the way, verse 4 and verse 12. It says, they think it's strange, but verse 12, beloved, think it not strange. They think it's such a strange thing that you should live as you do. They don't understand it. I get this all the time. You're not from Ireland. You don't drink. I get that all the time. Nah, you're not Irish. If you, if you were Irish, you'd drink like a fish. Well, many of them do. But I don't. I have no time for it. In fact, when I was ordained, one of the things I promised to do was to stand against it and to oppose it. As well as drinking, dancing, and the pleasure crazes of this world. I said that at my ordination. You see, there's persecution that comes upon the believer because he is a believer. And Jesus talked about it in Matthew 5. And he said, there's a blessing for you. There's a beatitude. Blessed are ye when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. You notice what happened in the book of Acts? In the experience of the apostles, two men, Peter and John, they were beaten with many stripes. You know what they did? They rejoiced because they were counted worthy of suffering shame for his name. Now, there's a lot in the Bible that speaks of persecution that arises, or sorry, suffering that arises from persecution and not from, from sickness or some other source. But whatever's causing our trouble, whatever is the source of our suffering, the basic principle remains 
the same. We're not to be surprised by it. Oh, how did this happen? How did this come upon my life? Why did this happen to me? Well, why should it not happen to you? Why should it not happen to me? I remember well a cousin of mine visiting my mother when she was dying. My mom was in a hospice. She was near the end. My cousin was very fond of her. Loved my mother. He's not saved. I remember him sitting in the hospice room crying his eyes out. And he was saying to my mother, it's not fair. It's not fair. I think of these dirty rascals out in the world getting away with all manner of evil. And here's a good person like you. And you're lying here suffering. It's not fair. As the tears run down his cheeks. But he was saying that because he's not a believer. He doesn't understand as the psalmist was taught to understand. We don't look at how the wicked prosper in this life. We look at what happens in the end. See, all the believer's sorrows, all of them are in this life. That's not true of the unsaved. That's not true of the unsaved. All their real sorrows are yet to come if they don't repent and believe the gospel. But sickness, trouble, is that which we cannot feel is unfair or in some way shouldn't be happening because it's part and parcel not only of the human experience but of being a child of God. Now when the Bible says we're to rejoice in sufferings and it does say that here you see that in verse 13 of 1 Peter 4 but rejoice that means be happy be overflowing with joy inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings. We're to rejoice. Now, notice it says, carefully notice, rejoice in sufferings. It doesn't say rejoice because of the sufferings. I've actually found in my life that I'm allergic to pain and suffering. Anytime I go to the dentist, I always tell them that. Now remember, I'm allergic to pain. I don't like it. I don't enjoy it. And when that thing gets... I'm telling you, I don't like it. The drill. Who in the right mind would say, who would like to have a root canal? Yes, please. I don't think so. The Bible doesn't say you rejoice because of the sufferings. It says rejoice in the sufferings. That's different. Rejoice in spite of the suffering. We don't enjoy suffering. We're not to be morbid, odd, oddballs who take pleasure in pain. Whenever pain comes, it does cause grief. That's natural. But the believer doesn't stop at that point. Martin Lloyd-Jones said about this, The reaction of the Christian to tribulations is not an automatic one. It is not a case of, well, come what may, I'm always happy. He is enabled to glory in the tribulations as a result of the application of his faith. Because he is a man of faith, he is able to do certain things. That's it. Because of what we believe. We believe that we serve a good God. We believe that we serve a God who will never cause a needless tear to his child we believe what the Bible says about how things in the end will turn out so we have this thought brought before us which is a reality that must be faced by believers but there is secondly a response that is often found among believers the Bible is a very practical book. It really is. And it touches on every facet of human living. So it has a lot to say about suffering. Not only about facing up to it, but it also shows us how we 
ought to approach it or react to it. And we see this both by direct teaching, direct commandment, and also by the examples in Scripture. And in this regard, I want to point to an example that the Lord himself uses. And that is here in James chapter 5, just across the page from 1 Peter. James chapter 5. Here's what he tells the Lord's people to do. Verses 10 and 11. He says, Take my brethren, the prophets, who have spoken in the name of the Lord, for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. Notice how they reacted to their sufferings. How they reacted to the problem of suffering. Now next verse. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job, and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. And it's interesting that he brings up the example of Job in particular, because the book of Job is a handbook, it's a study on affliction and trouble and how the believer should react to it. Now there are two ways in which a believer can react and respond to suffering. One is positive and the other is negative. Let's think about the response that's often found among believers is a spiritual response. And this spiritual response is expressed by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5. Because there he talks about rejoicing in suffering. Again, I emphasize it's not rejoicing because of the suffering. He's not saying, well, you have to be happy because of what's causing the pain and the trouble. But you can rejoice in the midst of it. That's what he's talking about. Notice this. Romans 5 verse 3. And not only so, but we glory. The word glory, as it's used here in the English, really signifies boasting or even rejoicing. In tribulations also. Knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. This suffering, it produces perseverance, and character, and hopefulness. Faith in action. Now again, that's not a matter of having willpower or a different kind of a temperament. We all have different temperaments. Some of us have short fuses and some of us not so much. Some of us are slow burners. We're all different. We're not all made by God out of a cookie cutter. We all have different personalities. And there are some people who really have tremendous willpower. They can do just about anything if they put their mind to it. Or endure anything if they put their mind to it. That's not what Paul's talking about here. Because that's not a spiritual thing. You can have a certain type of disposition. But what he's talking about here is something that every child of God can have irrespective of their temperament. And how can we rejoice in the midst of sufferings? How can we be content in the midst of sufferings? It's because of the knowledge that we have. Remember I said this in dealing with Romans 8.28. Don't forget the little words at the beginning of the text. And we know. And we know. That all things work together for good. How do we know? Well, we know it because the Bible teaches us this. We know it by faith. We also know it by experience. And we will know it in the end when we get to heaven that all things have worked together for our good. We know that God has displayed amazing love toward us. That's something we know. We know that our salvation is not something we've worked for. It's something that we don't deserve. And yet God has given it to us. We also know that the Lord has preserved us. He's kept us. And He's not going to allow us to lose that salvation that He has given to us. We know this. And because of what we know of God's grace, we know that suffering is not for our destruction, 
It's not for no meaning or for no end. Now, we don't know what that end is. I don't understand what the Lord is doing in my life at certain times. But I can believe that what He is doing is going to produce certain benefits in my life. You can be going through life without much in the way of trouble. And it produces a carelessness and a proneness to take things for granted. It's easy to live like that when you're not facing any difficulty. The wind is at your back, not on your face. Things are going well. And then all of a sudden there's a grenade dropped in the middle of your experience. And then what happens? I think with many, the first thing that happens is that it causes just great bewilderment. Don't understand it. But you know what we do often? We cry out to the Lord and we ask the Lord, Lord, why? Why is this? But the problem that comes causes us to pray with far greater intensity than ever we prayed before. When the trial comes, you know what happens? It gets us to our knees. It causes us to wait on the Lord like we never have. We're being taught, you see, by the suffering to endure, as the word is here, and to persevere. Whenever we have experience of trouble, it causes us to lean more upon the Lord, I'm telling you. In a way that we've never done before. And something that happens when trouble comes and we lean upon the Lord more, and that is that God visits our hearts in a greater way than He's ever done before. Someone said that God often sends His messages to us in black envelopes. We don't like tribulation. We don't like suffering. But when we're looking at things from a biblical standpoint, we're going to have the same view of it as the psalmist did. What did he say in Psalm 119? Verse 71. Look at it. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. There's two other things about this that we should note in verse 67 before I was afflicted I went astray but now have I kept thy word so it's been beneficial hasn't it the trial, the trouble has been beneficial because before the trial came you weren't walking with God as you should you weren't praying as you should you weren't leaning upon the Lord as you should before I was afflicted I went astray but now have I kept thy word see afflictions had a positive effect And again, the third reference is in verse 75. I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are right, and that thou in faithfulness hast afflicted me. There's something else that we need to learn as we respond to suffering. It's not because the Lord hates us. It's not because the Lord is angry with us. It's not because the Lord wants to beat us up. The Lord does what he does in faithfulness. It is good for me that I have been afflicted that I might learn thy statutes. This is the positive biblical way to approach suffering. But it doesn't come automatically to the believer. Because we know this by experience. A lot of times we chafe against the affliction. And we rebel against it. And we can be, if not outwardly, inwardly shaking our fist at the Lord. And that is very much a sinful way of responding to affliction. And that, I have to say, is the way some do respond. There should be a spiritual response, but with some, there's a sinful response. And the expression of that is something like this. Why is God allowing this to happen to me? What have I done to deserve this from God? You know what that does? That aggravates the problem. It doesn't solve anything. It makes it worse. Because oftentimes what happens then is, like some of the unsaved, it produces bitterness and a pity party in our own hearts. And instead of knowing the promised peace of God that passes all understanding in our troubles, we're shutting the Lord out and the pain just goes on and it even increases. See, the fact of the matter is, and we have to come to this point to understand, 
There is no answer to the question why. There is no answer to that question. Oh, certainly not one that the Lord is going to give to us. We know that the general response to this, the general answer to the question, why are we suffering, is because we live in a sinful world. That's the general answer. That's the catch-all. If it wasn't for Adam's sin, we wouldn't be in the fix that we're in. In the child's catechism, the question is asked, why were Adam and Eve driven out of the garden? Or what was their first sin? They ate the forbidden fruit. What happened to them when they ate the forbidden fruit? They were doomed to sorrow, toil and death and driven from the garden. They were doomed to sorrow, toil and death. This is the result of human sin. So all suffering in general, all pain, all disease, all sorrow, it's the result of the invasion of sin into God's creation. You know the wonderful thing? One day God's going to deal with that and it will be a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. We're going to be in heaven where there is no sin. But until then we live in a veil of sorrow. The idea, however, that because all suffering comes from human sin, therefore things that happen in your life must be a result of some particular sin on your part, that is not true. That is not true. But that's what the devil will tell you. That's what Satan will whisper into your ear. You know why this is happening to you? Because of this, this and this. Because you haven't done this. Or you have done this. That's why God is punishing you. But that doesn't square with Scripture at all. Because each case of suffering in the Bible is never shown to be a result of that individual's personal sin against God. I'll give you two examples. John chapter 9 and Luke chapter 13. Well, let's begin at Luke 13 since it comes first. Luke chapter 13. And the first few verses. The Bible tells us there were present at that season some that told him, that told Jesus, of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. This was an act of evil on behalf of Pilate. He was a bloodthirsty tyrant. And he killed a bunch of people. And he mingled their blood with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered such things? Do you think that that happened to them because they were greater sinners than everybody else? Look at the answer. I tell you, nay. That means no. But except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. And then he went on. Or those eighteen upon whom the tower in Siloam fell. This was what we would call a natural disaster. A building fell on top of all these people and crushed them. He says, those eighteen upon whom the tower of Siloam fell and slew them. Think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. It would be like saying that everybody that was killed when the twin towers were attacked, that they all deserved to die for their personal individual sin, and that's why it happened. That's not why it happened. That's a wrong argument. And Jesus said that it was nonsense. But then go to John chapter 9. You have another example. And even the disciples had bought into this idea that when you do bad things, you suffer bad things. And that's why it happens to you. It says, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. Think of that. Never had seen anything. Oh, how we take things for granted, don't we? Never to have seen a beautiful sunset or pretty flowers or some of the other beauties of nature. Never had seen any such thing. Blind from birth. Why? Well, his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin? This man or his parents that he was born blind? What a stupid question. How could the man be born blind because of his own sin? Or because his parents did something wrong? 
Therefore they had a blind baby. That's how people in the world, by the way, argue. That's how some people in the world think. Somebody has a disabled child. That's because they did something wrong in their lives to deserve that. What utter nonsense that is. That's unscriptural. And Jesus said it's unscriptural. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered, neither hath this man sinned. That means in a particular way. There's no particular sin in this man's life or his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. In other words, him, him being born blind was for the glory of God. And ultimately, the Lord healed him from his blindness. And some who are blind in this life, if they're saved, they'll have to wait to be healed from their blindness till they get to heaven. But when they get to heaven, they'll be able to see. No, it's a sinful response to try to argue that suffering is the result of some personal guilt or some personal sin on your part. But here's the other side of that coin. Just as it is true that particular suffering is not the result of particular personal sin, so personal righteousness and good living does not make you immune from suffering. Back to this idea, well, if you live right, everything will go well for you. No, it won't. Job was living right, wasn't he? In fact, Job was described by God as a man who was unique. He says, there's none like him in the earth. Hast thou considered my servant Job? There's none like him in the earth. There's nobody like him. But what happened to Job? He had ten children, and they all were killed in one day. Think of that. Ten children. All his sons and his daughters, for whom he prayed, by the way. They all died. He lost his wealth in one day. All his camels and his oxes and all the animals that he had, all destroyed. His wealth removed from him in one day. He lost his health in one day. There were sores and bruises from the top of his head to the sole of his feet. He was a mess. And his wife turned against him to make matters worse. And she said, Job, curse God and die. And then he had three men who were supposed to be friends. And we would say, with friends like that, who needs enemies? Because when they came, they made it worse. Ah, Job, you're suffering because of your sins. That's what they said. That wasn't true. That was not true. And just because Job was righteous, it didn't make him impervious to suffering. And so for us to have this sinful response to trials and troubles, which is, why should God allow that to happen to me? That implies that I've done nothing to deserve my painful experience. That might well be true in a sense, but it's irrelevant. The Lord has his own purposes for allowing certain things to happen. I suppose we're all the same when it comes right down to it. And we all say why in certain circumstances. Why me? Why this? It may be natural to react like that, but it doesn't help anything. It doesn't change anything. Someone said about this, what we should be asking is not why, but how. How can I in these circumstances learn more of God? How can I glorify God in the midst of my suffering and trial? How can I be a testimony for Him in a greater way in the midst of this? We need the Lord's grace, don't we? We're going to come back to this again in speaking about the reflection that should be first for believers in time of suffering. But just to close with this, that we are taught, we are taught to rejoice in suffering. Not to rejoice because of it, but to rejoice in it and to rejoice in spite of it. Look at Habakkuk chapter 3. What were the circumstances at this time? Famine, drought, no figs on the fig tree. And as the Bible teaches us, a fig tree that doesn't have any figs is useless. It's only good for throwing in the fire. But notice Habakkuk 3 verse 17. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, 
Neither shall fruit be in the vines, so there's no grapes on the vineyard. The labor of the olives shall fail, no olives are growing, and the fields shall yield no meat, no crops in the field. And the flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls, no animals. What sort of a farm would that be? When there's no crops in the field, there are no animals in the stalls. Desolation. Notice what he says in verse 18. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and he will make my feet like hinds feet. Those are animals that would climb to the highest elevations and he will make me to walk upon mine high places. You see this? Even though the circumstances are not good. They're as bad as they can be. He says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Because you see, in spite of our suffering, there's one thing that can't be taken from us, and that is God's salvation. You can take away my wealth. You can take away my health. You can take away my friends. You can take away every prop that holds me up, but you cannot take from me God's salvation. He's got me in the palm of his hand. And though he may send some affliction, twill but make me long for home. For in love and not in anger, all his chastenings will come. He will hide me. He will hide me. Where no harm can e'er betide me. He will hide me, safely hide me, in the hollow of his hand. May we prove it to be so, for Jesus' sake. Amen.